Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Last week, Mussolini got up in front of the Italian parliament and said, Hello, everybody. How are you? I would like to be a dictator now. And they said, That's cool with us. And fascist Italy is, in a lot of important ways, the original 20th century dictatorship. It tends to be overshadowed a lot by Nazi Germany, Stalinist Russia, Maoist China, even, it seems nowadays, North Korea. But before any of those regimes applied a boot heel to a face, there was Italy out there being terrible to its citizens. And this is not to say that Italy was new because it was a dictatorship. Tyranny is one of the oldest and most simple forms of government. And it was not new in that it was repressive. Repression is also pretty well established. Ask any slave or peasant population about that. But fascist Italy was one of the first states to be a dictatorship that was all about nationalism. And nationalism is kind of recent, really dates back from the late 1700s, middle of the 1800s. And Italy was the first state to make nationalism their thing, the organizing principle of their authoritarianism. And it was also a government that didn't just want people to obey the law and do their work and be compliant, but it actually sought to lord itself over people, influence people's private behavior, and it also saw the government, the state, as some summation of the will of the nation itself. It is, in a lot of important ways, the first totalitarian state. And the word totalitarianism It comes from fascist Italy. The earliest known use of the term totalitarian is from Giovanni Amendola. He was an Italian journalist, and in 1923, he looked at the black shirts, he looked at Mussolini's rise to power, he looked at the rising tide of fascism in his country, and he said that it was like nothing that had happened before. It was more far-reaching than other forms of authority or dictatorship, and he called it totalitarian. And Amendola was an anti-fascist. He meant this as an insult. He meant this as a warning. And, in kind of a cruel bit of irony, is this irony? I don't know if this would be irony. The guy who coined the term totalitarian, Giovanni Amendola, that journalist, he himself was killed by blackshirts in 1926. However, after Amendola, actual real fascist, in particular one actual real fascist, came and took his word and used it for themselves, self-identified as it. In that fascist who took the term totalitarianism and decided to stake a claim to it as something that he would self-identify as was Giovanni Gentile. And Gentile, like Mussolini, he's the type of guy who I think really wanted to be seen as an intellectual. Uh, He is a self-styled philosopher who attempted to give fascism a certain amount of intellectual legitimacy. Fascism is not like liberalism. Fascism is not like socialism. With both liberalism and socialism, you can go back and you can read, say, John Locke or Adam Smith or Karl Marx, and you can find pretty cogent articulations of those ideologies, explaining what they're about, why they work, giving them a kind of ethical and moral dimension. And Gentile, he tried to do the exact same thing with fascism. I don't think he did it all that well because he was a crazy person who didn't believe in individual rights, but he tried to do it. Uh, in particular, in a 1932 article called 
The Doctrine of Fascism. Now, this is an article that is credited to Mussolini himself, but it is believed to have been actually written mostly by Giovanni Gentile. And in this article, this is what he writes about totalitarianism. And this is a fascist totalitarian summing up their own totalitarian philosophy. Quote, The fascist conception of life stresses the importance of the state and accepts the individual only insofar as his interests coincide with those of the state, which stands for the conscience and the universal will of man as a historic entity. It is opposed to classical liberalism, which arose as a reaction to absolutism and exhausted its historical function when the state became the expression of the conscience and will of the people. Liberalism denied the state in the name of the individual. Fascism reasserts the rights of the state as expressing the real essence of the individual. And if liberty is to be the attribute of living man and not of abstract dummies invented by individualistic liberalism, then fascism stands for liberty. And for the only liberty worth having, the liberty of the state and of the individual within the state. The fascist conception of the state is all-embracing. Outside of it, no human or spiritual values can exist, much less have value. Thus understood, fascism is totalitarian, and the fascist state, a synthesis and a unit inclusive of all values, interprets, develops, and penetrates the whole life of a people. No individual or groups, political parties, cultural associations, economic unions, social classes, outside the state. Fascism is therefore opposed to socialism, to which unity within the state, which amalgamates classes into a single economic and ethical reality, is unknown, and which sees in history nothing but the class struggle. Fascism is likewise opposed to trade unionism as a class weapon. But when brought within the orbit of the state, fascism recognizes a real need which gave rise to socialism and trade unionism, giving them due weight in the guild or corporative system in which divergent interests are coordinated and harmonized in the unity of the state, unquote. Oh my god, that is so scary. Like, I actually feel sort of uncomfortable uh, in this series reading actual literal fascist writings out loud, and I can tell you it's only going to get worse for me because we haven't even gotten to what fascists said about race and ethnicity. That's going to get really bad. But what Gentile is saying there, he's saying, you do not need the concerns of classical liberalism. You do not need the concerns of socialism, because they are all bound up within the state, and the state takes care of absolutely everything. The state encompasses and transcends the concerns, the morals, the ethics, the values of those other systems, rendering them obsolete. It is all totally within the state. It's totalitarian. Or, or as Mussolini said himself, in a more succinct way, in a 1928 speech, he said famously, all within the state, nothing outside the state, nothing against the state. And I want to address something that a few of you are probably thinking about right now. I imagine there are some folks listening to this podcast who are really familiar with the history of totalitarianism and are thinking, uh, Joe, according to Hannah Arendt, Italy was not totalitarian. Yes, I know. Um, if you haven't heard of her, Hannah Arendt is probably one of the most famous and best political scientists of the 20th century, and her book, The Origins of Totalitarianism, is absolutely amazing. 
Uh, that is a book where she mostly talks about Nazi Germany, but also Stalinist Russia. And she talks about fascist Italy mostly in relationship to those two other states. And she characterizes fascist Italy as a nationalist dictatorship rather than truly totalitarian. Now, I think that Arendt actually raises some interesting points about that, but she mostly talks about fascist Italy in relation to other later totalitarian regimes, not fascist Italy in and of itself. For my purposes in this podcast, I am going to talk about Italy on its own terms, Italy as it related to Italy before and Italy after, and other contemporary states, as opposed to, say, what came later and what we can say about it in hindsight. So I'm going to refer to it as totalitarian because they referred to it as totalitarian. So deal with it. But anyways, what does totalitarianism mean? Um, I just read you a whole bunch of theory. I just read you a whole bunch of rhetoric. But in this episode, I want to talk about what totalitarianism actually meant for people in their everyday lives and how Italy went from being just kind of a failed democracy to Mussolini saying he was a dictator to full-on totalitarianism. So in terms of concrete policy daily life stuff, totalitarianism in Italy started immediately after Mussolini's speech in January of 1925, and I do mean immediately. On the afternoon of the same day when he gave that speech, January 3rd, he telegraphed fascist prefects around Italy and told them to shut down any protest, any meetings, any gatherings, or any kind of public assembly that, quote, might be viewed as subverting the powers of the state, unquote. Liberals and socialists were arrested in numbers and fascist patrols clamped down on any future dissent. So immediately out there in the streets, you have people shutting down any kind of incipient local resistance. Meanwhile, Mussolini made good on his promise to be the be-all and end-all of Italian fascism and Italian governance. Uh, Mussolini was, by all accounts, not really good at delegating. Uh, apparently, he would get really distracted by details, and he really liked getting into the nitty-gritty of all kinds of things, even if he was not an expert at the thing. The impression I've gotten is that you probably wouldn't want to have him as a boss, because he's the kind of boss who would interfere with your stuff, whether or not he knew anything about it. And he ended up snapping up all kinds of administrative power within the government. After the March on Rome, he was both Prime Minister and Minister of the Interior. And later on, he also became the Minister of Foreign Affairs, the Minister of War, the Minister of Navy, and the Minister of Air. That is a whole lot of ministration for one guy. Not that anyone called him minister of anything. In 1926, Mussolini's title, Il Duce, or leader, was formalized. Also, as fascist Italy became more and more of a totalitarian dictatorship, the state clamped down on what had in recent years been a source of disunity for the Italian state, and that would be unions. Again, remember, all kinds of union activity, organizing, strikes, and resistance prior to the March on Rome. And under Mussolini, unions would still exist. Workers could still organize on paper. Those organizations, they would no longer actually be a source of agitation. Uh, they were meant to serve the interest of the state rather than their members. Uh, the Italian system is now known as corporatism, and it was one in which both business and labor were subordinated to the state in a top-down system like the one described earlier by Gentile. And 
Tullio Cianetti, he was an Italian union boss, he wrote, The fundamental essence of fascist unionism is summed up in a single word, collaboration. Not pointedly competition, struggle, resistance, or even bargaining. Any kind of department where there might be some kind of disagreement and there might be some kind of debate, that is gone. And in a 1926 law called the Rocco Law, both strikes and lockouts were banned. The uncertainties of management locking out labor or labor going on strike, they were legislated away in favor of a command economy by the state. And you might be thinking, well, wouldn't that make unions kind of vestigial and pointless? And yes, yes, it would. They would still technically exist, but they wouldn't be able to do any kind of meaningful actions that would benefit their members in any sort of real way. So union resistance was curtailed, as was the potential for local resistance in local governance. In 1926, the fascist regime created the position of Podesta, or mayor, and local mayors would no longer be elected by, say, the people who lived in the town or the city or the local village or hamlet or whatever that they were mayors of. Instead, the Podesta would be appointed by the national government. So, even if there was a small town, even if there was a medium-sized city or a very large city that was fomenting, you know, anti-fascist governance, well, it was up to the national government to actually appoint who was going to be in charge there. So local control, totally out the window. So far, everything I've talked about has been big and organizational. This is related to things like governments, like unions. Uh, it's about Mussolini having a bunch of new ministries. But this also got into people's personal lives. The regime also sought to turn Italians into what they called new men, and also wanted to change the actual character of everyday citizens of Italy. And they did this in all kinds of ways. Later on, I am going to talk about how fascism characterized history and culture and all that. But one of my favorite little details about how they tried to do this was that Mussolini and his party secretary, Achilles Terace, they found the handshake to be a feat and foreign. So instead of, you know, a featly shaking somebody's hands, they encouraged Italians to use the masculine, militaristic, stiff-armed Roman salute. You know, extending your arm out in front of you. That thing Nazis did to say hi. And the regime also inserted itself into people's family life. And this was really, really big. Like I've said before, and like I'm going to keep saying, fascist Italy was nationalistic. And one of the things that they perceived they needed was more Italians. Not more people in Italy, but more people birthed by Italian parents to become soldiers, factory workers, that sort of thing. And in the early 20th century, Italy, they had lost population due to things like World War I and also emigration. Plenty of Italians left their native land for a better deal in France, in Germany, or in the Americas, including, by the way, some ancestors of your humble podcaster. So Italy, they have people leaving, and it's also got one of the highest infant mortality rates in Europe at the time. And Mussolini thinks, you know what? If we want to be competitive, we need more people. So in a 1927 speech, he inaugurated what he would call the War for Births. 
and announced that he wanted Italy to have a population of 60 million by 1950, which was a probably unrealistic goal. In the late 1920s, Italy's population was under 40 million people, so he's expecting Italy to birth an additional 20 million plus people in the next 20 years. He is expecting Italy to increase by 1 million citizens per year. Completely untenable. But in any case, this is something that the fascist regime really, really gets behind. It is women's duty to start popping out babies. And Mussolini, who thought war was a great thing for guys to do, said that war is to men as motherhood is to women. Abortion, of course, was banned. Uh, contraceptives were also banned. Hiring and labor laws, they began to discourage women from working entirely. Women were kept out of the workforce. And also, hiring and labor laws privileged married men. So if you were a guy and you were married and you were doing your duty and popping out kids, you were more likely to get the job or the promotion you wanted. Couples were given economic incentives to reproduce. Mussolini even had a holiday about this. In 1933, Mussolini declared December 24th to be the Day of the Mother and Child. So he attempted to co-opt Christmas as a holiday for people to make lots more fascist babies. In the late 20s and throughout the 30s, the most prolific women in various provinces were given awards for having lots of kids, often being presented by Il Duce himself. Mussolini would go out to various provinces, meet the most fecund moms, uh, give them cash prizes, and then pose for pictures with lots of kid-havers. And it's sort of weird, because it definitely reads that Mussolini is hanging out with all these moms, and he is Italy's virile, smiling, baby-producing dad. Meanwhile, lest you think that the gentlemen could do as they pleased, Italy also instituted a bachelor tax. Uh, so if you were a single man, whether because you couldn't get a lady, whether because you were gay, because you were not interested in sex, for whatever, well, you'd feel that at tax time. And this doesn't even work, by the way. Uh, this whole gigantic campaign by the Italian government to get people to have more kids, it fails on its own terms. Uh, RBJ Bosworth who wrote Mussolini's Italy in a great biography of Mussolini and is the big English-language historian of fascist Italy, says, quote, Moreover, contrary to some legend, Italy was not an especially prolific society. Its birth rate at around 23 per 1,000 inhabitants per annum by the late 1930s registered steady decline. It had been above 30 before 1914. And this fall was not checked by the new policies then adopted. The Italian marriage rate fell below that in the UK and Germany, where, in the latter country, the imposition of Nazi rule inspired rapid increase. Unquote. So you've probably had a mom or dad or grandma or grandpa bugging you about getting married, bugging you about meeting a nice girl or boy. And, even if you do get happily partnered, you've then probably had them bother you about when are you going to have kids? When are you going to have another kid? How many kids do you want to have? Now, imagine all that familial pestering coming at you from a militarized dictatorship. It's not just your annoying mom or your pesky dad who's sticking their nose into your personal life. It's the state. That should terrify you. Oh, and on top of all that, journalism was also subverted. By 1928, journalists, all of them, 
had to be card-carrying members of the fascist party. If you weren't a member of the party, you were not allowed to be a journalist. And they were expected to be Italy's cheerleaders. Um, they had to adhere to this whole new style guide that glorified the state in general and Mussolini in particular, including when they referred to Il Duce, Duce had to be spelled in all capital letters. And whenever pronouns were used to talk about Mussolini, those pronouns had to be capitalized. So forget objectivity here. The very conventions of writing were glorifying the leader of the state. And any kind of negative reporting that might have made the regime or Italy in general look bad was completely banned. Now, this will include all the stuff that you would expect, like protest, like resistance, like bad news about employment or production numbers or anything like that. But my favorite, my favorite thing that journalists were banned from reporting on in fascist Italy, shark sightings. If there were any sharks that were sighted off popular beaches or vacation spots, journalists couldn't say anything about that because it would promote an image of an unharmonious, potentially dangerous Italy where very large carnivorous fish might spoil your vacation. This makes Mussolini just as bad as the mayor from Jaws. So this is all terrible and repressive and not conducive to resistance. And even though there were still plenty of anti-fascists out there in the countryside, in cities, maybe in union halls, or maybe loathing the fascist regime in their hearts or minds, there were not a lot of people who were doing it publicly. By 1929, the fascist had crushed any opposition that might have still lingered in Italian political life. Anti-fascist politicians had either been forced to join Mussolini's party, or they'd gone into exile, they'd been put in jail, or in the case of Giacomo Matteotti, they had been killed. By the late 1920s, Italy is truly a one-party state. And on March 24th, 1929, Italy held a plebiscite just to, you know, check in with people about whether or not they wanted to keep going with this whole fascism thing. This was not a free or fair election. There were social and potential legal costs to voting no in this thing. Uh, also, plenty of people probably realized that voting no wouldn't have actually meant anything, so take these numbers with a grain of salt. In this 1929 plebiscite, you have 89.63% of the Italian electorate voting. And by the way, that electorate, that is only men. Women were not allowed to vote. Women were supposed to be at home, producing lots of fascist babies. Of that electorate, 8,519,559 people voted in favor of the fascist regime. 135,761 people voted no, very bravely voted no, because there was a cost for doing so. 8,092 voters marred their ballots, making them unusable. And I've talked about how this system invaded unions, media, the government, people's family life, journalism. But there's one really, really big thing I haven't talked about yet. An organization that is quintessentially Italian, and also quintessentially international. An organization pretty firmly entrenched in Italian identity, yet whose very name means universal. And that is the Catholic Church. And next week on this show, we're going to see what happens when Mussolini's Italy cuts a deal with the Roman Catholic Church. 
This podcast is ad-free and independent uh, because of you, because of those of you who choose to support this every month. So if you haven't already, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com, sign up for a monthly donation. That would be wonderful of you. And thank you to all of you who have done so already. Really appreciate that. Be sure to go on iTunes, give us reviews and ratings. And that does some alchemy in the middle of the iTunes thing that makes this show easier for people to find. And thank you very much for everybody who has rated and reviewed the show already. Uh, the show's on social media, Facebook, facebook.com slash Weird History Podcast. I am on Twitter at Joe Streckert. Thank you very much for listening. Talk to you next week. Bye. Mm-hmm.